Slips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop them. They're gonna kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone. Or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious. Makes you so sick at heart. That you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. And unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, It's four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon where I am in the north of England, uh, which makes it 11 a.m. on the east coast in the States. I've no idea what time it is in Australia, but I'm sure it's, was it 16 hours ahead? Something like that, I don't know. It's tomorrow morning probably by now. Um, anyway, so I've got a, I've got a show today that's a, a bizarre combination of eugenics and Joni Mitchell. And I don't have a link between eugenics and Joni Mitchell directly, but I'm linking them both to last week's Sure, mainly because the, the eugenics section of the show is uh, 
is about partly about a eugenics conference that happened in New York. And, and last week's show was about Andy Warhol, who was based in, in New York for, for the bulk of his life. So that's the link to eugenics, to that particular eugenics conference, which was 1921. And it happened at the end of September, so it's 100 years since that, that's the second eugenics conference that happened. Joni Mitchell is there because I like Joni Mitchell, so I'm not even trying to link Joni Mitchell to eugenics. I'm just, Joni's in there because she she does good interviews, and I wanted to play some some of what she says about, about her painting and her art. So in a sense, that's a link to to uh, last week's show as well, Andy Warhol, because Joni, Joni Mitchell's a, obviously a singer-songwriter and, and an artist, a painter, and, and graphic artist. So similar in some ways, very different in other ways to Andy Warhol, but I'm linking both of these to last week's show, and uh, I, might, I might continue on both of them next week or carry on one of them next week. I don't know. I'm just going to play it by ear, see how it goes. Um, but uh, I'm hoping it'll be a good combination. I'll keep things lightish, even though we're talking about a heavy subject to begin with. So I'm going to start with eugenics. Uh, and I've got a, there's a Wikipedia article. I know Wikipedia is a bit of a dodgy source, but it's a place to start. And uh, I wanted to read a little bit of, of Wikipedia and then I'll play, play a video. So here we go. So the, the International Eugenics Conferences is what I was looking up. Uh, there were three International Eugenics Conferences took place between 1912 and 1932. And there were a place for, for global scientists, politicians and social leaders to plan and discuss the application of programs to improve to improve humans by their perception of, of improving humans. So, and the background to this is assessing the work of Charles Darwin and pondering the experience of animal, animal breeders and horticulturists. Francis Galton wondered if the human genetic makeup could, could be improved. The question was then forced upon me, he said, could not the race of men be similarly, similarly improved? Could not the undesirables be got rid of and the desirables multiplied? The concept of eugenics, a term he introduced, soon won many adherents, notably in North America and England. First practical steps were taken in the United States of America. The government under Theodore Roosevelt created a national heredity commission that was charged to investigate the genetic heritage of the country and to encourage the increase of families of good blood and discourage the vicious elements in the crossbred American civilization. Charles Davenport, supported by the Carnegie Institution, established the Eugenics Record Office. Further significant funding for the eugenics movement came from E.H. Harriman and Vernon Kellogg in an effort to eradicate unfit offspring, 
sterilization laws were passed, the first one in Indiana in 1907, then in other states, many strictly for eugenics reasons, to better the race, in inverted commas, allowing for compulsory sterilization. Other eugenics laws limited the right to marry. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip to this, this particular video now, uh, which is about a court case in 1927. Uh, here we go. So Book v. Bell, which was a Supreme Court case. Let me share my screen. I remember. Right, let's start that again because I messed that up really. Let's do it again. It's taking its time to load up anyway. So there you go. Let me know if you can hear the video properly. Mr. Beat presents Supreme Court Briefs. Madison Heights, Virginia, September 10th, 1924. Eugenics Dr. Albert Sidney Pretty, the dude in charge of the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, requests to sterilize 18-year-old patient Carrie Buck. According to Dr. Pretty, Buck had the mental age of a 9-year-old and argued that if she was allowed to have children, this would be dangerous for society. So, just so we are clear here, he wanted to force her to go through a procedure so that she could never have kids because of her genetics. Wait, hold up. Let's go back a bit because this story is even more messed up than this. So Carrie Buck was the daughter of Emma Buck, who previously was taken away by the state from Carrie and her siblings when Carrie was a kid. Virginia confined Emma to, you guessed it, the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded for Prostitution, Immorality, oh, and having syphilis. So Carrie grew up with foster parents who treated her like a slave. How did Carrie also end up at the Virginia State Colony? Colony for epileptics and feeble-minded, her foster parents sent her there for hopelessly bad behavior, sleeping around, and, quote, feeble-mindedness. I'm not joking. Also, they sent her there apparently as a result of being raped by her foster mother's nephew. Again, I am not joking. Since Carrie Buck was declared mentally incompetent to raise her child, her now former foster parents ended up adopting the baby. At seven months old, that baby, whose name was Vivian, would also be declared quote, feeble-minded. So anyway, back to Dr. Pretty, trying to sterilize Carrie. He first wanted to make sure it was legal. I mean, the state had passed a law called the Virginia Sterilization Act of 1924, which allowed doctors to forcibly sterilize patients who supposedly had genetic traits that would be damaging to society if passed on to the next generation. However, the law had yet to be tested in the courts. So the board of the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded got it to happen. After ordering Buck sterilized, the board appointed her a random dude named Robert Shelton to be her guardian. He was the guardian of several of the institution's patients and got paid for doing it, by the way. Buck's lawyer was a dude named Irving Whitehead, who was a eugenics fan who wanted the sterilization law. Oh, and apparently he was also on the board, helping request Buck's sterilization. In fact, 
fact, he was good friends with Albert Pretty and Aubrey Strode, who represented Pretty in court. There's no conflict of interest there. Whitehead made no effort to challenge the accusations that Buck was feeble-minded, of course. Shelton appealed the sterilization to the Circuit Court of Amherst County, who agreed the sterilization should take place. Shelton appealed again to the Supreme Court of Virginia, who also agreed it should take place. So, one more appeal to the Supreme Court, who heard oral arguments on April 22, 1927. By this time, Pretty had died, and his successor, Dr. John Bell, now represented the Virginia State Colony for epileptics and feeble-minded. Buck's defense argued that she had the right to have kids because it was her right to due process of the law, and that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment also protected that right. The court didn't take too long for this one. On May 2, 1927, it announced its decision. It sided with Bell, saying the Virginia Sterilization Act was constitutional. It was 8 to 1. The lone dissenter was Justice Pierce Butler, who did not write an opinion, but him being a devout Catholic may have played a role. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the opinion, saying, yes, Buck, as well as her mother and daughter, were indeed, quote, feeble-minded and, quote, promiscuous, and it was in Virginia's interest to get her sterilized. So basically, public welfare was more important than the welfare of one person's body, a classic greater good argument comparing sterilization to forced vaccinations. In fact, Holmes referenced the case Jacobson v. Massachusetts, a 1904 Supreme Court decision which upheld a Massachusetts law forcing kids going to school to get the smallpox vaccine. He wrote, quote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind, unquote. Holmes now infamously concluded by writing that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, unquote. Wow, Wendell, just wow, buddy. Buck v. Bell further legitimized eugenics laws throughout the United States, and several states added sterilization laws afterward. In fact, 30 states had some sort of sterilization law, and ultimately around 65,000 Americans were forced to be sterilized, most of them from poor or working-class backgrounds, and many sterilized without even knowing it. At the Nuremberg trials after World War II, Nazi doctors specifically cited Holmes' opinion in the decision to defend themselves. It certainly remains one of the most hated Supreme Court decisions ever. Buck v. Bell was never overturned. Believe it or not, it still stands, although it was later weakened by the Supreme Court case Skinner v. Oklahoma. Fast forward 75 years and Virginia Governor Mark Warner apologized for his state's participation in eugenics and later some called for reparations to all the sterilization victims. So whatever happened to Carrie Buck? Well, on October 19, 1927, a few months after the Supreme Court decision, Dr. John Bell personally performed the operation that prevented her from ever having children again. She was the very first person in Virginia sterilized under the new law. In order to make sure the entire family couldn't reproduce, Carrie's sister, Doris, was also later sterilized after she was hospitalized for appendicitis. Uh, yeah, she was never told about the sterilization. Doris and her husband attempted for years to have children. Only in 1980 did she find out why they were unsuccessful. Carrie's supposedly feeble-minded daughter, Vivian, later did well 
one school, even making the honor roll. However, she unfortunately died from an infection when she was eight years old. As it turns out, there was no evidence whatsoever that Carrie Buck was, quote, feeble-minded. Most accounts later describe her as having average intelligence. People who knew her recalled how nice she was to everyone and how much she enjoyed reading books. She lived a long life. She died in 1983 and was buried in Charlottesville, near her only child, Vivian. I'll see. Okay, so that's the Supreme Court judgment and what arises from that. Obviously, I'm looking at this from from the UK. I'm a long way away. It's all relatively new to me. Uh, I don't. I, the details are new anyway. I knew there was forced sterilisation going on, but I've, I've never investigated to the point where I was looking at individual cases before this. So, um, it's all it's. It's an interesting period in history. It's one that we shouldn't be repeating, really. Um, but history does have a tendency to repeat itself. And, and it's usually when the people who remembered start to die off that it begins to repeat itself. So it's roughly an 80, 85 or 90 year cycle, I think we're in. Um, so we're 100 years in, so we're just past the the repeat point and uh, I'm not totally convinced by the argument about there being a eugenics agenda going on at the moment because most people seem to refer to the Georgia Guidestones as their main source for that and I'm not convinced that Georgia Guidestones is a good source for, for building a theory on like that so I've got me, my mind's open I'm doing some research but I'm looking at the history more than I am now. Um, I'll keep digging out this type of stuff here and there just to fill in some gaps. As I fill in the gaps for me, I'll just I'll use it to to build a radio show around now and again. So let's go back to this second conference in New York because that's my link to last week's show. So the second international eugenics conference originally scheduled for New York in 1915, met at the American Museum of Natural History in New York on September 25th to 27th, 1921, with Henry Fairfield Osborne presiding. Alexander Graham Bell was the honorary president. The State Department mailed the invitations around the world under American leadership and dominance, 41 out of 53 scientific papers, the work of the eugenicists disrupted by World War I in Europe was to resume. Delegates participated not only from Europe and North America, but also from Latin America, Mexico, Cuba, Venezuela, El Salvador and Uruguay, and Asia, Japan, India and Siam. The major guest speaker, Major Darwin, advocated eugenic, me eugenic measures that needed to be taken, namely the, an inverted commas, elimination of the unfit, the discouragement of large families in the ill-endowed, and encouragement of large families in the well-endowed. The average young American male composite statue created by Jane 
Davenport Harris was exhibited during this conference Congress and again at the third as visual representation of the degeneracy of the white male body that would continue if advised eugenics measures were not taken. So it's all a bit of a scientific mess really because it's not science. By today's standards it's not science, it was considered to be science at the time. And there are lots of things like that around the place, aren't there? Uh, you think about in a hundred years' time, what elements of the science that we're using now will still exist and be credible? And the answer is not very much of it, because science changes in the same way that everything else changes. The accepted science changes over time, and things get overturned and different consensus arises particularly in this in this human based so social and biological science type stuff anyway so that's the link to last week and i want to play johnny mitchell interview at this point so well there's a first of all there's a an accepted speech from the, well, it's not, it's not really an accepted speech, it's backstage interview. Uh, it's only six minutes, this one, and I'll line up something else after this as well. Taking its time, there we go. Joni, can you yeah. tell us how it feels to win and also um, the meaning of these particular awards in general? Okay, well, um, because one was a graphic art award and one was a, a musical award, um, and because in recent time, well, last year I was going to quit the music business and just paint, you know. Uh, and then along came a wonderful drummer and a wonderful new uh, invention in terms of electronic, um, I don't know what to call it, it's a, it's a brain that you play a Stratocaster through, but it's a new palette of colors for me. So it gave me a kind of a new creative surge and it re reinterested me in, in the musical process. But in a way I kind of wanted to, I was being drawn further and further into the painting. So since the awards came out that way, I thought, well, I'll leave it up to fate if I win for the art you know like uh, well then i'll go into painting if i went for the music but then i didn't think i'd win for either they both seemed like kind of like long shots um how did it feel it was delightful victory is indeed sweet but it was sweeter because i got to share both of these awards with very people who are very close to me my ex-husband <laughs> to be <laughs> and and my dear friend robbie you know we paint together so since you know, you're sharing it. I, I guess that's what bands before they break up, you know, Klein and I are breaking up, but we're not, not as a band, you know, like we're just living in two different houses. So, so yeah, it was, it was sweeter to win with friends, I think, than it would have been if I had won alone. Exhausted. I haven't slept in two days. <laughs> Big sellers, yeah. I don't know how that happened. I don't. It means it's an honest horse race. Joni? 
don't know. I think, was it this? You know, I've done a lot of good work and never been even nominated for it, so I don't know. Was it the sympathy vote? I don't know. Joni, <laughs> it was a good feel? album, but there were a lot of good albums that never got nominated. I don't know. Things undulate. Who knows? Joni, how do you? Somebody feel? gave me an award. People are copycats, you know. Like so, then somebody else gave me an award. I think it's the year to give me awards. <laughs> Joni, they're calling it the year of the woman. This Grammys. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about uh, that? Being one of those women being honored. Well, I, I hate to be redundant, but uh, as I said in an earlier, is this our only year? Do we get a year? I don't know. I don't like to think that way. You know, I, I, I never thought that I was a lonely woman in a man's world. I, I had a couple of feminist attacks uh, when I discovered how high the battering rate was on women and things. And, you know, but I try not to think about it. I, you know, I'm a heterotype. I like the company of men. I've been traveling on the road with guys for a long time, as you are in this business, you know. So I tend to think that creative people are somewhat androgynous anyway, but and great art embodies masculine and feminine aesthetics. Uh, I, I, I just don't want to belong to a gender club, you know what I mean? Although there are issues like, you know, 50% of the women in this country are battered, 60 in some regions. You know, like the, that are kind of appalling. We're in some sort of, uh, I guess they, you know, and, and a lot of it happens on the big football game. You know, do they bring the beer warm or they just take it out because their team lost? Or I mean, why? You know, like, uh, you know, we're in a state of cultural adjustment, obviously. Joni, uh, I'm curious. You talked about your music and your art, both art forms. Is there something that you can grasp as to what each one does for you and why it was that you were being drawn more towards the art and then what you mentioned what drew you back but why you were being drawn between the two and can you just draw a distinction I was, there yeah I was fed up with the music business I wanted out it made me sick to my stomach I was having nightmares you know that, that snakes were flying the snakes are the symbol of loathing in my subconscious were flying through the air at me and what was keeping them buoyant CDs uh, they, they were flying, they like, you know, like in The Little Prince, he swallows the hat or something. They'd swallowed CDs, albums, and 45s, and sidewinders were coming off of 24-inch track in the ditches of this place. You know, I thought, yeah, it's pretty clear to me, I loathe this business and I want out. So I called a meeting of the executives at Warner Brothers, told them my nightmare, said, I don't mind being a sharecropper, but I will not be a slave. You know, the only alternative I have is to, to go on strike. And they turned out to be some decent guys, and they said, I don't see why we can't make this a win-win deal. You know, so I ran into some fairness. Um, and then I ran into a great drummer, and then a local merchant who knows how to put the right guitar with the right person who knew all of my problems with my open tunings had created the frustrations that I had. Well, the, you saw the album cover of me with my ear cut off. I was very frustrated, you know. <laughs> so now do you think that the... Uh First of all, have the nightmares stopped, and will, oh, yeah. will these help? <laughs> well, this is just sweet, you know. Like, and and I think all of us, Robbie, you know, the recognition that for that album cover it was sweet to both of us, and for Klein and I, we've made five albums together. So I kind of look at it as not just being for this one, but for all our work together. And um, it was nice it, to help me a lot. Thank you. All right, I've been watching a lot, a lot of Joni Mitchell, listening to some old Joni Mitchell tunes here and there this week. 
partly because I'm in that kind of creative, creative people mode. Andy Warhol did that to me. So uh, I've gone into Andy Warhol mode. I was thinking about about eugenics and creativity earlier on, and I think there's a link. I think that I think there is a link uh, because eugenics is 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 recreating humanity in a sense. So it's reimagining humanity and then creating the the outcome of that imagining through genetic manipulation through through breeding programs and sterilization and all that business so i think those two things are linked i think eugenics could be interpreted as a as a as an expression of a creative process and i'm not sure how how else i'm going to link it to johnny mitchell but that seems to be the way that i'm doing it that's that's where my head took me earlier on when I was thinking about it. Anyway, there's there's two or three different short interviews that I wanted to play. So let me just set the next one up. This is Johnny Mitchell being interviewed after receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award. To begin to sing my songs and carry them around, which enabled, it, it opened up my club circuit. It was hard to get in there without a record deal without, and being an unknown, but where they went, my songs went. Initially it was Circle Game and I think Buffy did Song to a Seagull and, and um, so the songs began to travel and, and they opened, they paved the way for club work on the eastern seaboard primarily. So when a song, some of the songs started to get a life of their own, go out there and, and you would go out to perform and people would start singing along with you and stuff like that, did that really give you a perspective on, on, on what good music and poetry could do to uh, kind of in, uh, enhance the human spirit? Or? Oh. I don't know exactly when I began to take it seriously. It was kind of just a lark initially. I think it was when, I think it, well, a lot I owe to Kratzman. I think he made me take it seriously in the seventh grade in a certain way, but then I forgot about that. But once you began to record and, and then, then the work really began to travel internationally, you realized that you had a public voice, or I did, and I felt a responsibility to that. And I'm a double Scorpio. We are very secretive by nature. Um, it, it was a peculiar transition to become a kind of a public confessor, but something that Katzman said, which I later discovered to be uh, an idea, thus makes Zarathustra, the German philosopher Nietzsche, he told me in, in the seventh grade to write in my own blood, which is basically what Zarathustra says, having completely slandered the poets, rips them to shreds, you know, like, and then the last statement is, I see a new type of poet, and he's a penitent of spirit, and he writes in his own blood. So basically, Nietzsche's feeling at the turn of the century was the poetry was basically adulterated shimmerism, a lot of 
uh, they muddy their waters that they might appear deep is one of the things he said. Some pretty funny stuff. I've looked among them for an honest man and all I've dredged up are old God's heads, old God's heads. So it's pretty scathing and the poets at the time really objected to it, but I found that it rang incredibly true. And the, the duty of the poet in this latter part of the century was the illumination of the, the spirit. And although it was the antithesis of, of the, the pop posture, I was going to have to do it in the pop arena. Um, I was talking to Roy Arbison oh, maybe about 10 years ago and I asked him what really his secret of music was. And he said that he took opera and he put it over top of pop music. Yeah, it sounds like that, kind of think of it, yeah. yeah. Um, is there, is there a, an analogy or a metaphor that would apply also to to your music? Well, I, I, you know, not that I read the complete works of, but, but I can try to use Shakespeare as my pace runner, you know, or Yeats, uh, linguistically for the sound of the words, um, Dylan also. Um, but there aren't a lot of real literary writers in, in song. There are good songwriters, you know, and I always liked songs and never confused them with poetry. At a certain point, <clears throat> I decided, though, that I wanted to set poetry to music because so many of the poets really wanted to have their songs sung. Yeats, um, you know, tried to do it, couldn't do it. Anne Sexton, um, you know, so feeling it's a good marriage if you can do it. If you have both the gifts, then, then it's a blessing, kind of. So was it, was it poetry that... Um that your grade six or seven teacher were, that was, I, I think I, I've heard that this was kind of a turning point for you that you were writing. He was an Australian teacher, you said his name was Craftsman? Mm -hmm. And uh, where, was that up in North Battleford? Uh, no, that was here in Queen Elizabeth. In oh, Queen Elizabeth in Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. Was it poetry that you were writing that that this point happened maybe where you experienced the paradigm or, or? I went for a mark. I never cared about marks. Ah. I got turned off of the whole idea of marking in the first grade. <laughs> and, Your mom and dad are laughing a lot about that. <laughs> well, this woman, innocently enough, what happened was there was this huge curve of population in North Battleford as the baby boomers hit the school system. So they had to annex the parish hall, they called it, and they dredged an old lady who was a nice old lady, but oh, she was like, you know, well-meaning. Um, she, in the first few weeks of school, tested us on everything, I guess, and then decided to put the A students into the outer row against the wall and call them the Bluebirds and the B students in the next row. They were the Robins and then there were the Wrens. I believe I was a Wren and then there were the Crows. And, <laughs> and I looked at the Bluebirds and I thought, I don't like any of them. <laughs> I like the Crows. <laughs> <laughs> and and I kind of I can't remember exactly how the words were formulated in my mind, but the essence of what I thought at that moment, I I just rebelled. I thought, you know, from from here on in, I don't care about marks, you know, whatever that prize is, I'm not going for it. And the thing that gave me the courage to do it, we had to draw a three-dimensional doghouse, and I thought mine was pretty good, so I said, okay. This is, I'm good at this, I'll do this, you know, and I'll, I'll draw my strength. So it was pretty hard to ridicule me into being scholarly, but when we got to the 
to the seventh grade, Karen and I reminisced this not that long ago, a couple of months ago, because she was in the same class. And um, into the room came this guy. Well, first I met him in the sixth grade. I was putting up some drawings for a parent-teacher day, and he came up to me in the hall, and he said to me, you like to paint? I said, yes. He said, uh, if you can paint with a brush, you can paint with words. Now, to give a kid that age permission to do two things is a wonderful thing. You know, I met George O'Keefe in her 90s, and she said to me, well, I would have liked to have been a musician, but you can't do both. Because for her to be a painter at the turn of the century was enough for a woman in a way. And I said to her, oh, yes, you can. And she leaned forward, and she said, really? <laughs> I mean, she was, and I thought, the old bird is going to be taking up the fiddle any minute. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, he gave me this permission, and then the next time we met was the first day of school in the seventh grade, and he came through the door, and he said, his first words were, this whole year's course is a bunch of crap. I can cram you for it in the last two weeks of school, and you'll all pass by, with flying colors. And I thought, a bunch of crap. <laughs> it's all a bunch of crap, you know? It's like, he knows it's a bunch of crap, so I was just totally alert. Then he said, okay, I'm going to teach you what I know. I don't know much, but I know my name. He wrote his name on the board, and he said, and, and I know Australia because I'm from Australia. It's a grace note in this year. So he didn't use exactly that word, but, you know, it's a minor subject this year, but we're going to make it a major subject. Then he said, and I hate these desks. He said, somebody go pull the blinds down. Oh, I thought I hate these desks too. So he pulled the blinds down. We shoved all of the desks back. And it was so conspiratorial, plus he cursed. And we, we all loved the fact that he cursed, you know. And he, he felt us out really quickly. Well, anyway, in the course of the year, he made an assignment. And, and it was always fun when he gave us First of all, he sat down every morning and he read us Rudyard Kipling's Kim, which for me was a very inflammatory text because it was a child with total freedom who knew his city more than well, and this town was very cliquish and we were not allowed really to deviate from our neighborhood. It was isolation within isolation. Here was a kid who knew his whole city and could go through, you know, the Ukrainian area and the, he could go anywhere. You know, and, and he did it through disguises. He just you know, he was a citizen of, of, the, of his city, you know, uh, and real inflammatory stuff. And he then would smother the, the blackboard with writing. Do you remember the topics that he'd put on? He knew his class very well. And there was one boy who sat across the aisle from me who drew daggers through squashed toads all day long. <laughs> he had a very violent nature, and he finally went to Dundurn to boot camp. Right? He could score. <laughs> And he would have, like, squash toads would be one of the topics for writing on the board. So he had something for everybody there. And um, I went for a mark for the first time. I, I, wanted, I wanted his approval. So I wrote a very ambitious poem. And uh, it was a stretch of vocabulary, which I got from probably from the Reader's Digest and with Mum's help. Uh, equine, I think Mum contributed an adjective to it, which was pretty ambitious for an 11-year-old. Anyway, I, I turned this poem in. I can remember the first stanza of it. It was quite long. And when the marks came back on it, he gave me, I think, an A-minus or something. But he gave 
the squash toad guy in A+. <laughs> so I, I stayed after school to contest it, and I said to him, you know, did you like my poem? He said, I thought it was very good. I said, um, did you like the, the squash toad poem? Yes, he said it was very good for him. I said, did you think it was better than mine? Oh, no, he said. I said, well, you gave him an A plus and you gave me an A minus. And he said to me, oh, well, but that's the best poem he'll ever write. <laughs> All right, I, I do have another clip of Johnny Mitchell to play at some point. Uh, but it's it's only 10 minutes, so it can wait a few minutes. There's no rush. And as I say, I've been I've been uh, not sleeping well this week. I've I've had music on my mind. In particular, I had open source kind of Creative Commons public domain music that I can use in my podcast on my mind. So I've been looking for sources for that. And uh, I think I found one that that's uh, worth worth checking in with every now and again. I've kind of discovered dark jazz, which I didn't know existed. So I'm interested in ambient and dark jazz and that sort of thing now, which makes good background music for me to talk over the top of. If I can time everything properly, it'll make the podcast a bit more atmospheric. I'm trying to put a bit of atmosphere in there. I've done a couple of couple of podcasts from the local Weatherspoons, which is a a bar that I drink my coffee in a couple of times a week. So I was in there yesterday, yesterday afternoon. It was very, very busy. But uh, I recorded a bit of a podcast type thing with the with the noise of the background of the the Friday afternoon. Weatherspoons crowd, which which does make a lot of background noise, so it's difficult to hear what I was actually what I was saying and what the video I was playing was about. But it makes for atmosphere, and I'm trying to change the way I do it. So I'll, that'll filter into the radio show at some point as well. When I when I work out how I want to do things and what I want to do, then I'll I'll just do it everywhere. That's kind of how my head works. But there's no rush, and it's all kind of an experiment anyway. All of, the, all of these things are a bit of an experiment for me. So it's uh, it's coming along nicely, though. The radio station's coming along nicely as well. That's still having a, a good run. Now, this is Johnny Mitchell again. I even liked it better when it hit the 80s and it was ning, 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 this neurotic little beat I like better <laughs> than, than the anxious militant beat of rock and roll in the 60s, um, with, with a few exceptions. You know, of course, the giants, the geniuses like Jimi Hendrix and, and Sly, to me, those are the great talents for me of the, of the 60s. But rock and roll was born in a black idiom, and it was, it was a saucy kind of thing, you know, it was designed to get your spirits high and then it became this militant alarm ringing mm -hmm. and um, I mean, this is what I like outside of my own music. I'm not talking now at all about my own music. Mm -hmm. you know. When you were in the Canadian Band-Aid, 
I also read somewhere that you said that you weren't really for those kind of things, the kind of events, like, like the Band-Aid, that it was... Um, that I wasn't for them? Well, that, that you <clears throat> had some, some opinions about maybe people used it more for their own fame than actually for somebody else's famine. Oh, and frequently the money never gets to the cause. Uh -huh. You know, they are a bit of a self-congratulatory... They, I think they do more to make heroes out of the people who support them than they actually do for the event. That's been proven. For instance, the Bangladesh, you know, which was Dylan and George Harrison, um, there was a tremendous amount of celebration, and of course they were elevated as humanitarians and so on. The money never got there. It just came out of escrow a few years ago. So there is, but but I'm not against these things. I still think that that they that they do so much less than they seem to do, but that little that they do, as trivial as it is, you know, as minuscule, is important. I'm not against them, no. That's just that the reality of them is there's so much less than they are, seem to be. When you wrote the song Ethiopia, had you been there, or was it just through what you heard on the news? Every night on, on Sunday, uh, Sunday night television in the States, um, there were a series of evangelical broadcasts, and the last one was really bait for bleeding hearts. I mean, it was ripe for scamming and possibly was a scam. And there they would show, you know, these poor and desperate people, and there would be a man and a woman, she dressed in Rodeo Boulevard safari suits, silk safari suits wandering through. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty awful. I mean, you, you know, and they would flash the number of a telephone number where you could send money, you know, and uh, again, you know, at, at the risk of sounding like a cynic, you know, um, I don't, I don't think I am, I don't live in cynicism, you know, um, part of what may sound cynical is factual, so it's more... These things are difficult, you know. Mm. I'm very empathetic with the Ethiopian people, but it has to run the gauntlet of their very corrupt government, bad organization to get the food to them in the first place, the fact that the government basically wants these people destroyed, and there is a kind of a genocide at work. Um, difficult, very difficult. Do you feel more cynical now? I don't think, in defense of my point of view, it is fairly well informed. Mm. I think cynicism, I think I have my moments of cynicism where my realism is exaggerated and flippant. Mm. But I think that it's based on unfortunate fact. I have to come and see you, maybe once or twice a year. A lot of your lyrics have been about your troubled relationships with men. Do you feel that you shift a bit now, that you, you emphasize different things in your lyrics? Um, well, I did write about the anatomy of the crime, you know, a, a lot, about people's inability to really love and their mistaken knowledge of what love is. Again, um, people are taught in these cultures how to to be sexy there's a lot of emphasis on being sexy and very little emphasis on loving mm. you know um so my that has been a constant theme with me um 
and I made it kind of my life's work to figure out what love was, to analyze my capacity for it, hopefully to increase my capacity for it, always with the optimism that if I was properly prepared and was capable of loving, that love would come to me. I'm happily married now, so um, it gives me space to turn to other themes. Do you think an album like Blue could have been made today? Not against the cynical climate of the 80s, where it's chic to be, uh, to insult the artists. You know, I mean, I took some flack back then for writing that intimately, but but not of the viciousness that that accompanied journalism at the onset of this decade. Were I young and writing like that at the onset of this decade, what I could imagine they would have done with that? Oh, I don't think I would have survived it. I would have gone back in my shell and would never have had the courage to continue. Well, I don't know. Maybe I would have. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say because it's all hypo hypothetical. I know in Montreal I just gave some interviews and there the the interviewers were encouraging me to write another album like that and that's what I said to them are you kidding you know you, you know you guys would pin me to the wall if I reveal like these kind of vulnerable things you know to be vulnerable in the 80s is death itself isn't it i mean the whole world is striving to be hip and cool and duh, you know like and well defended that doesn't leave much for music though doesn't it no it it makes music have a lot of posturing and not much real human spirit but a lot of posing and posturing i'm bad i'm bad <laughs> <laughs> it's not your favorite record is it no no i like that i really see I, that's terrible you know but i mean it's it's typical of how we must present ourselves in order to be hip in this decade you know don't mess with me because i'm well defended you would never go you know like Please be my friend, I'm not very well defended. You wouldn't offer yourself for it. No, they'd eat you alive, wouldn't you think? Mm. I think so. I read that you said sometimes that um, the intellect was a very overrated instrument that you'd rather work from intuition. Is that how you still work? Well, my, my intuition, I think, is, is more accurate than my intellect. My, in, my instinct will tell me, you know, first of all, like instinct, is like is like a computer chip. It's like Shakespeare on a pinhead. You get a lot of information very fast. And now if you want to expand on that, you would have to go to your intellect to expand it, to tell, but you would know that fast with instinct, a tremendous amount. And if somebody said, what are you thinking? You have to now go to intellect to tell it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's slower. Intellect is a lot slower. You can learn this fast. And sometimes intellect too, will tell you, gets mixed up with image and all. It's slower and stupider. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good tool, but it's linear and analytical. And it, you know, it, reason is like revered as being, you know, the great standard, you know, um, I think it's a wonderful tool, but highly overrated, you know, like I think that there are other ways that, that, that knowledge comes.
that are clearer and quicker and they can't necessarily be explained. So if, if people say to you that you are an intellectual artist, would you like that or would you not? It's not true. But, you know, in answer to your question, which direction will I go in? Well, there are all these possibilities. I've always wanted to do something very minimal with Miles, for instance. You know, maybe just voice and guitar and trumpet. Very small. Or maybe to put together a band like Manu Cachier um, on drums. I mean, there's, I have a lot of ideas, but they're all, diff you know, all idiomatically different. Okay, that's Joni Mitchell in her own words. Um, I'm interested in the create in that type of creative process and the way she comes up with the the ideas and how they're formed into poetry and songs and painting. That's what interests me at the moment. That's where my head is. I'm interested in in the same way that I'm interested in the way that Andy Warhol does what he does and uh and ronnie james Dio in in that case as well links in the previous shows uh you can find me online on twitter my name's dennis barker on twitter and uh there's a, a couple of places you can find me doing podcasts um i've got an audience on spotify it turns out uh, i spoke to somebody last night and I need to say hello to Chris, Jack, and Becca in Germany. Uh, I've got an audience in Berlin, and they asked me to say hello. So hello to you guys. Thanks for your support. And uh, there's always a few people in the chat room. Mitzi's in the chat room. May Street's in the chat room. I'm not sure who else is listening, but there's a few people in there that are, are supportive. So that's that's a good thing. And everything seems to be working reasonably well, despite the chaos and nihilism and nonsense that's going on around me. I'm uh, I'm in good shape. I could do with getting a better night's sleep than I'm getting, but apart from that, I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah, and uh, things are progressing on two or three different fronts. Uh, the audience is there, and I've got confirmation that the audience is there now. So I'm happy with the way things are going. I'm appreciative of Rev Radio. Our oh, Comet's listening as well. That's good. Thanks, Comet. Uh, Rev Radio's listener supported. So if you've got five or ten dollars burning a hole in your pocket, come over to revolution.radio. You'll see a donation tab on the top navigation bar and you can you can set something up monthly or you can give a one-off donation. It all kind of goes towards paying for servers. Nobody really make nobody makes any money from it. We all do it do it as a volunteer. I do an hour a week at four o'clock my time, eleven o'clock Eastern on Studio B every Saturday. Uh, it's been music for the past few weeks. It might vary a little bit until the next theme comes up. But um, thanks for listening, folks, and I'll see you next week.
to Revolution Radio. Hey everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Be evasive. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, and there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. What the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad Radio. Federal prosecutors, Department of Homeland Security agents, and curious passersby often ask me, just what is this truth jihad thing anyway? Well, everybody knows what truth is, but jihad is a misunderstood term. Jihad means effort or struggle. The greater jihad is the struggle to be a better person, while the lesser jihad is the struggle to defend the community. Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, did say that the best jihad is a word of truth flung in the face of a tyrant. And that's what we do here at Truth Jihad Radio. Every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 7 Pacific, right here on Revolution Radio. Revolution Radio. 